right. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. I was just watching Phantom Thread, so was, he was on my mind. Um, yeah, I remember Cap Hill's first Christmas Sunday. The first time that Christmas fell on a Sunday, I think, was the first year of Capitol Hill's, Calvary Hill's existence. And uh, no one was there except me, Nick, Amy Keeney, Justin, and Spencer. It was, oh, and Anna. Brittany? Is Brittany there? Anyways, whatever. It was, it was so awkward because I was leading worship for us. You know, it's like, it's like so weird. Um, but it was, it felt cool because, um, I, and I loved how Justin had us do it. It's like, we're doing this. We're a church, guys. It's Sunday. <laughs> right? And we were like, I guess. <laughs> um, so tonight, uh, we're going to kind of wrap up, not the story as the story keeps going, but we're going to wrap up this kind of trinity of series, uh, trinity of messages here. Um, and this is the most important one for the weekend. And it's the most important one because it, it will provide an anchor for the things that we've been talking about. And what we've been talking about is this moment in time that we want to give the Lord to ask that He would stir up our spirit, that we would be encouraged to pray and open up our own hearts, our lives, our, 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 our emotions and our, our life direction, our decisions, our relationships, open them up to the Lord and say, God, you know, move in us, move, do something here. So we talked about God stirring us up and what that might look and feel like. Then we talked about how when we do step out, that requires faith. Well, tonight I want to talk about how God is with us when we do that. So just to recap, we've covered that God's people leave Babylonia, return home, settle down, then begin the, the temple project. They build the, the altar, then they build the, uh, they lay the foundation for the temple. Now they're in the middle of building. And wouldn't you know it, a few years in, they run into trouble. So grab, grab your Bible and turn to Ezra 4. Ezra 4. Because just a few years into building the temple, they run into trouble. They, they, they run into opposition, red tape and all of the above. So read with me starting in verse 4. Ezra 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Recently, I cooked dinner for my family. It's a rare occasion. And I was making spaghetti. And so, you know, it's one of those things. When you have young kids, like you're trying to help your wife out, and it's like not, it's not totally decided if cooking for her, like subbing in to cook for the family is actually helping or if I'm just creating more work. I, I don't know. But 
it was clear in this instance that it was more work for her and just an unfortunate occurrence for me to even attempt to cook for the family. So I'm cooking, I'm cooking spaghetti for our kids, our cousins, um, their cousins, and then the neighbor kid is, is over too. So a bunch of spaghetti. And it... it <laughs> yeah, which is a lot more work, right? Okay, so I cook the noodles, that's fine. So it comes time to... Um, kind of warm up the sauce, and I grab the pasta sauce, and I grab it, and I, and I try to open it, and, you know, kind of, and I'm trying to hide from, because they're all over there, and I'm all, and Brittany comes over, and she goes, do you need help? And no, I'm fine. She goes, do you need someone with a stronger grip? Okay, so I gave it to her, and she's just like, there you go. Oh, it's a mistake having me cook. This is why we've divided things up the way we have. Um, <laughs> but it was, the, the problem was, I had just taken a nap. So you're, now you're getting a view of our home life. It's hard for my wife. Okay, so I, was, uh, I had slept on my arm. You know that feeling of sleeping on your arm when you wake up and you can't hold anything? You're just all... Uh, someone shakes your hand and you're all... Uh. You know that feeling of just loose, like noodly hand that you can't grip anything? <laughs> That's actually literally what the word here in verse 4, discouraged, means. The word for discouraged means literally a weakening of the hands. In other words, the grip that Israel has had on the work God gave them to do is beginning to slip. Discouragement is setting in. Fear and difficulty and opposition and red tape. All because of what it says here, the people of the land. Now the people of the land were the neighboring countries that they came home and all of a sudden found themselves neighbors to. These were Samaritans. You might have heard of Samaritans um, who were Assyrians who settled there and became sort of like enemies to the Jews. They were like half Jews, half Assyrians. And so they don't like each other. And these neighboring people groups do not want Israel to succeed because Israel is a military threat. They're an economic threat. And all in all, they're just kind of hogging all the attention. Clearly, they've got some sort of favor with the king far away. And so these guys just do not like it. And so they're trying to make things difficult for them. And it says that they're discouraged, they're afraid, and they're frustrated. They're discouraged means their grip has slipped and their morale is sapped. The pressure is increasing on them and their work is now slacking. They're afraid the word there for afraid is literally troubled. Speaking of the trouble of just working at all. The, the work is getting too hard. It's not worth the risk anymore. And in the end, it's stalling. And then it says they're frustrated. Or the, the people of the land sought to frustrate their purpose. Literally, the phrase is to foil their plans. To put up red tape. To, to, to uh, pass legislation that would put a bunch of new building codes and so they couldn't do what they needed to do and they needed to get permission for everything and they weren't getting permits that they needed, all that stuff. So eventually, the project stalls. Why don't we skip down to the end of chapter 4. Just read the last verse of chapter 4, verse 24 with me. 
It says, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It stopped until the second year of Darius, meaning for 16 years, no construction. The hammers that were heard echoing through the streets of Jerusalem have stopped. The vision people had for a thriving capital city, no more. The worship that was sang and and celebrated at one point has now faded into nothing. The people leave. They put down their, their work belts. They go home, each to his own cares, worries, families, tending to his own house. No one, it seems, is thinking of God's house anymore. Mission unaccomplished. Now, if you've ever attempted to do anything, you know that doing anything is hard. You know that if you want to accomplish anything, you're going to run into trouble. There's difficulty. In fact, you might even say that nothing worth doing is easy to do. Everything that we try to do runs into trouble. And this especially goes for followers of Jesus. We do not get out of a get-out-of-trials-free card just because we think we're serving the Lord, just because we think we're on God's side. In fact, Jesus told us to not be, a, not, to not be surprised when we run into trials. And you might remember the verse in James 1, which says, "...count it all joy." my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. So not only should we not be surprised that we're going to run into trouble, but according to James here, we should actually be stoked about it. We should count it all joy. We should be happy. Why? Because through the trouble, through the heat and pressure of that trial, our faith becomes something valuable. It becomes steadfast. Or the NIV says perseverance results. It's something becomes, our faith becomes more strong than it would have been without the trials. But isn't it true that instead of counting trials as joyful or being stoked about it, isn't it true that instead of that, we often find ourselves avoiding trouble. We find ourselves avoiding things as much as humanly possible, as much as we can. We don't want to apologize to that person. We don't want to rectify that situation. We don't want to displease anybody. We don't want to show ourselves to be weak or insecure or anything. We, we kind of avoid trouble. But because we avoid trouble, our faith is not steadfast. Our faith is not a persevering, strong, consistent faith. And we actually lose out when we avoid trouble. And our grip loosens on the work that God has called us to do. Question, what is the work that God has called you to do? What exactly? You know, we're not building the temple, but we're each doing something. God's called us to something. We're, in fact, we're praying that God would stir us and call us to do something this weekend. Maybe you are called to build a healthy, God-fearing family. Maybe you are called to pursue a godly career. Maybe you are called to be a loving, supportive spouse. 
to show integrity at work, honesty at home, excellence at school. Maybe you need to learn to set the example for your kids. Maybe you need to give generously, pray earnestly, love neighbors, serve others. And I know for a fact that we are all called to build God's church and to play a part in that. But as we avoid trouble, we become discouraged, afraid, and frustrated. And our passion for the work wanes and our grip on it weakens. And we start to say things like this, I just don't want to anymore. Or we're afraid because what's ahead of us looks too big to face or God seems too small to face it. And we start to say something like, I just don't think I can. Or the work that God's doing in our life seems to stall and it's just one step forward, two steps back. And after failure, after failure, we just can't seem to succeed. And so we end up saying, I know I can't. What is it that we need in times like this? What is it that God's people need to inspire them to get to work again? When our passion is waning, when we're discouraged, even when things don't seem worth it anymore. What we need is a word from God. We need a word from God. Look with me at Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. I cannot tell you how many stories like this I have heard in my life. Where life, for someone I know, or even for myself, seems stalled, not moving forward. Discouragement has set in. There's a lack of will. Sin has taken hold of that life. And the shame of regret clouds the mind. And it's at that moment that the Word of God penetrates the mind, infiltrates the heart, and the life begins to spring up and well with, with flourishing and vibrancy and urgency and willingness and energy once again, and the work starts over again. I've seen it many times. Perhaps you have as well. And in God's people here, we see that after a decade and a half of no progress on the work, God, in the middle of this, raises up two obscure dudes, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who have a message, they have a word, they have something to say, quote, in the name of the God of Israel. And their message is what kickstarts the project again. Because God's work starts with God's word. And it is always that way. God's work starts with God's word. But here's the, the big question for us tonight. What was their message? What was it that they said? And how did that make any difference? What was it that Haggai and Zechariah found so important to say, and how did that actually kickstart such a massive building initiative, something that fails in the face of opposition all the, the whole time? How did this work out? You know, when, when we... When, when we start to see somebody do something they shouldn't do, 
we have a loved one go the wrong way or not living up to their own potential or we're making mistakes or we see people making mistakes and making really bad choices or just not being the way they ought to be, how do we respond? What is our message in that situation? Like Speaking for myself, a lot of times we want to scold that person. We want to nag them, yell at them, harangue them, get annoyed at them, kick them in the butt, so to speak, and, and quote, inspire them through, criti- you know, through more critical feedback, and hopefully that works. If I'm honest, I do this with my, my kids sometimes, way too often. This is what I call get-up Bambi. Okay? If you've seen Bambi, you know the story. Bambi, as a budding teenager with his little antlers, is now starting to find his way in the world. And then man comes along. Man. Man is so bad in Bambi. Man sets fire to the forest because that's what man does. Anyway, so Bambi sees this blaze coming at him. The forest is on fire. And he's freaked out. And so him and all of the the woodland creatures scurry the other way. And they're running, they're prancing, and the cymbals are crashing. The fire is on its way, and Bambi comes across this kind of rocky ravine area, and he trips, and he falls. And he's sad, and he's hurt, and he can't go on. And what's going to happen? I just don't think I can make it. And it's in that moment that this giant... Huge barrel-chested deer shows up right above Bambi with these huge antlers zigzagging in every direction. And he stands there above Bambi, looking at Bambi, and he says, Get up, Bambi. (laughs) And he says it again. Get up. And Bambi looks up and he says, Oh, it's you, Dad. And he says, Thanks for showing up, Dad. At the moment I needed you. Thanks for abandoning me and mom right when I was born. Thanks for not being there when mom was shot and killed by men in that meadow. I'm so glad you finally showed up in my moment of need with a harsh, critical, scolding word for me to encourage me to do the right thing. Get up. Get get up. See, that's what we're doing. Oftentimes, when people are not living up to it, when they're not making the right decision, we just, our words are harsh, they're shallow, they're not accompanied with any sort, any sense of promise or love. They're just a scolding. And they come across in the same kind of a way. God's word is completely different. God's word is so Different. And luckily, we have God's words preserved for us. The words of Haggai and Zechariah are preserved for us. So we know exactly what their message was for Israel in this time. And I want to read just one line from Zechariah here, because it boils down to the heart of God in this moment. From Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. This gets to the heart of Zechariah's prophecy. God says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. 
Here's what we need to know about God, guys. God has never asked His people to do something that He would not do in return. God has never asked us or demanded us to do something that He wouldn't do or that He hasn't already done. See, when He says, return to me and I'll return to you, He's not saying, if you return to me, then I'll consider returning to you. Right? It's not this earning works-based thing that if they repent, and that word there for, for re- return is the word repent, if they repent, then God will be happy about it. No, rather, it's a promise. When you do this, I also do this. Return to me and I will return to you. It's a promise. In fact, them returning to God at all is in response to His invitation of grace. The only hope that they could have to return to the Lord is because He loves them. And because He's vowed to do what they... to already have done what He's asking them to do. And we see this in Jesus. Jesus says, pick up our cross and follow Him. Wasn't He the first to do that? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that... Exactly what Jesus did for us. God would never have us do something He wouldn't do Himself. But I want to do something for us. I want to dive a little deeper into the prophecy of Haggai. So turn to Haggai. It's about in the middle of your Bible. If you know where Matthew is, you can go left a few books and find Haggai, which is a really short book. It's on page 1512 of my Bible. That doesn't help you very much, but helps me. And go to Haggai because our question, what was the message of Haggai and Zechariah and what is is God's Word in the midst of a situation like this is answered when we dive deeper into the prophecy of Haggai. So look at Haggai chapter 1 and let's read in verse 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Out of fear, it seems. Out of fear, it looks like God's people have forsaken building the temple, but now are fixing up their own houses. He says, is it time for you to dwell in your own paneled houses? And when I think of paneling, I think of like 1970s style houses. But I don't think that's right. I actually think it's more like farmhouse style shiplap paneling, painted white. Joanna Gaines came in, open concept, right? He's saying, is this right that you would mix up your priorities at this time? You've forsaken the house of the Lord, the temple, but you've fixed up your own houses? And isn't it true for us, isn't it true that? Sometimes it's out of fear that we get really nice things. That it's, we actually fix up our houses or do great things or succeed really because we're insecure about things and we want to prove to people uh, that, we're not, that we're not failures or we want to stick it to them or, or show up that person or, or prove that we're not afraid or whatever. The same, the same is true for God's people here. Out of fear, they've begun to build up their own houses. So Haggai says, your priorities are all out of whack. He calls them out. He says, no, you're here for something greater. Verse 5, 
Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and rebuild the house that I, have, that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So Haggai challenges them. Consider your ways. That refrain from Haggai's message means give careful thought to things. Examine your life. Look around. Be honest with yourself. And tell me, isn't something missing here? Aren't things a little out of order? Are things exactly how you envision them? Or is something a little askew? I love how the message says, take a good hard look at your life. Think it over. Haggai is challenging them to be honest, to consider things, diagnose the problem, and really see how things are actually going. Because since coming home from exile, the people have been expecting prosperity. But now, it seems, in instead of abundance, there's lack. Instead of a large harvest, the crops yield very little. They never have enough to eat or drink, so... They've been hogging it to themselves and spending it on their 1970s penthouses. So Haggai says, consider your ways. Think about this. You know when you say hi to somebody, say, hey, what's up? How's it going? And they say, good. And you know because you're friends with that person that things are not actually good. Right? And you're like, is it really good? Why do we do this? What is this custom? Hey, how's it going? Good. I know it's not good, but nice to see you. Like, what if people answered honestly? Hey, how's it going? Actually, it's not good. Let's sit down. I really want to talk. And you're like, oh, no, I was just saying hello. I'm out of here. You know, that's not what I meant. It's just a custom. It's not, it's not easy to take a glimpse under the hood of your life. It's not easy at all to look critically at things, examine it, understand it. When we do, we become aware of our own faults and also our strengths. Because when we're honest, we'll see the good and the bad. This is difficult. I don't totally know why, but maybe it's humiliating, maybe it's vulnerable, whatever it might be. Benjamin Franklin said there are three things that are extremely hard. Steel, diamonds, and to know thyself. And he's right. And I believe, I believe if we are to continue to be stirred up by the Lord and do what He has us doing, God is challenging us right now. Take stock in your life. Think about things. And this is a really healthy exercise if you want to give it a shot. Consider. Consider your ways. Think about just how much do you need the Lord? How has your life measured up to the vision you had for it. How's it going? But really. Because when we do consider our ways, all of a sudden we become aware. Wow. I have a lot to think about. I have a lot to do here. 
Things are not going the best. There are things that could improve. I have a lot to work on. In other words, when you really know yourself, you'll find out how much you need God. We need God because we're afraid. Afraid to act. We need God because He shows us the way. We need God because when we fail, His mercy is what we need at that moment. And that's what leads us to repentance. And there's new mercy every day. We need God when we are discouraged because He has promised to be with us. I want to show us that. Because if... I don't know if it's just me, but when I read Haggai's prophecy here in verse 8, he says, go up and build. Go get the wood. Get to work. What's wrong with you? Go do it. This sounds a lot like get up Bambi to me. Right? Haggai's like, consider your ways. Go get it done. What's wrong with you? Just do it. It's not get up Bambi. See, God, God here is not nagging and scolding His lazy and selfish people. Lazy and selfish though they totally be. No. What Haggai says to them comes with a promise. Let's skip down to verse 13 and read God's promise. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Are you surrounded by enemies? I am with you declares the Lord. Is the building stalled? I am with you. Are your expectations unmet? I am with you. Is your future uncertain? I am with you. Are you afraid of the consequences? I am with you. Are you in need of help? I am with you. In other words, I dare you to find a place in your life, a location on earth, where you can find that God is not with you. You can fly a Tesla into space. God is with you. You could ascend into the heavens. God is with you. You could bore into the core of the earth. God is with you. You could dwell in your own personal hell. God is with you. God will never call people to do what He has not done Himself And that's how the work of God begins when we realize that God is with us. How does this work? How does it play out? Well, as it says here, the Lord stirred up the Spirit. Once again, that vision to accomplish something for the Lord begins with Him stirring up His people. It begins and it ends with God, which is why the whole time we must be in prayer. We must be honest about ourselves. We must consider our ways. We must have our sights on Jesus. We must, as Colossians 3 says, set our sights on things above. This is where we are aiming. This is how God works among us. And so with a 16-year hiatus, 
building starts again on September 21st of 520 B.C. In case you're curious. They build for a few years and the temple is completed in 515 B.C. The second temple, which was then later um, um, kind of expanded by King Herod, and this is the temple that Jesus walked through. This is the temple where He was captured, tried, and led outside to be crucified. In Ezra 6, we read this, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. And this house was finished. What does it mean, what does it look like to respond to the Lord? Because I'm aware that this language might be new to some of us, or at least uncomfortable or a challenge to some of us, where we're not, you know, we're we're not totally aware that God can and, and desires a real dynamic relationship through His Holy Spirit with you to stir you up and move you to do what He wants to do. So what what does that look like? And and, and especially for people who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And I think we can maybe give the whole respond to God thing, kind of hand that off to the non-Christians or the less mature Christians. But in my opinion, and I think this is right, whether you're responding for the first time or the 500th time, we all need to respond to the Lord daily. This is what it means to walk with God. I remember listening to a friend of mine a few weeks ago. He told me, he told me, Riley, my dad was a, a traveling itinerant preacher. And he would travel around the Northwest and places and, and preach and give this invitation for people to, you know, respond to the Lord. And he'd, he'd speak the gospel and people could, you know, respond. And he said, he would never see much, he would never see much response especially in churches where it was all Christians. And I just went, shouldn't that be where you have the most response? Isn't that what it is to be a Christian? To respond to Him. To be stirred up in our spirits by Him. Now, um, I kind of want to end just by leading us with a simple prayer. You know, because responding to the Lord is not always this cry fest. It can be just a simple thing with the Lord speaking to us. So two, two angles I want to approach as we kind of stand and pray together. Two angles I want to approach this. One, we're praying that we could respond to the Word of the Lord for us. I don't know what that is for you. No one can really tell you except God. That we could respond to that and be open to that and be stirred by that. Or two... If you desire to speak forth words like Haggai and Zechariah, if you desire to be a conduit for the words of the Lord, words of encouragement and and help to inspire others to step up and respond to the Lord, let's let's pray from those two angles. So I want to invite us to stand together. And here's our prayer for the night. And Chris will lead us in worship once again. Here's our prayer for the night. Let's all take a posture of prayer. Bow our heads, close our eyes. And as Christina was telling us this morning, holding our hands 
open in a posture of openness. Maybe palms down in a posture of letting go. Whatever the case might be. Here's our prayer for tonight. Dear God, You are with us. Help us remember that. Amen.